Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. This is episode 83 of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and this week we're dancing in music lessons. Hey there, beautiful teachers. I want to say right off the bat that this probably isn't about what you think it's about, or you might have got a hint in the intro there, but when you look at the title, Feel the Beat in Your Feet, you're going to think I'm talking about marching, probably, to the beat, which is quite common, and if you're not doing it already, it's a great activity to do, especially with those students who have trouble feeling the beat or the pulse in music. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today, or at least it's related to it, but that's not the whole story. What I want to talk to you about is how we teach meter, or how we don't teach meter. How do you approach it? Do you even talk about it at all, or do you just explain time signatures and the concept of it, and not really practice it in any any substantial way? Because I feel like that's what most of us are doing. We talk about this marching. But actually, that's the easier one. Yes, it is challenging when you have a student who can't feel the beat and you need to do a lot of preliminary work to help them with that or they're really going to struggle. But most students get that reasonably well. The marching beat. And the reason they get it, I've talked about this before, the reason they understand or can feel or are familiar with 2-4 and 4-4 is because they hear it all the time. Well, 4-4 in particular, but 2-4 is not that far off. They hear it all the time, all around them, all pop music, almost entirely is in 4-4. To the point where when you actually hear a little bit of a waltz in something, you, you notice it, right? At least I do. But most, most modern music, most music from the last, let's say, 70 years? that people actually listen to, not the classical stuff. Most music is in 4-4. And so that makes it much clearer why students struggle with triple meter in general. And some do struggle with duple meter as well. They struggle with it because they don't hear it. They don't experience it. And so it's purely an intellectual exercise for them when they try to approach it in their playing. And that's not how it should be my opinion. So in my studio, I call this accidental 4-4. If you've ever had a student who does this, 
they just add an extra beat to the end of the bar once they're in 3-4 or 3-8 or anything. They just add an extra beat. They make the last note longer or they put in a rest and it's not supposed to be there. And I call that accidental 4-4 to them as well. Some of them know what I'm talking about with that. So what I wanted to do today was to share with you a strategy for improving this. There's a really interesting TED Talk. I mentioned a TED Talk on the last episode as well. I'm not binging on TED Talks. They just happened to come up two episodes in a row. But there's one by Benjamin Zander, which I'm sure many of you will have seen. It's called something like The Power of Classical Music or something like that. And in it, at the start of it, he gives this demonstration of a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old and a ten-year-old. And then I think at 11 is where he stops playing the same piece of music. And he's simplifying things for effect and it's not a very accurate representation of what most people learn in piano lessons these days and the rate that they go at but it is interesting to look at and he's making a point. His point is not specifically about meter, he calls it impulse. So he builds up from the seven-year-old who has an impulse on every note, i.e. there is no meter at all, and then the next year they have an impulse on every second note or an emphasis on every second note and he builds up from there. He's actually talking about phrasing, but I think it's useful to look at in this context as well, because it is about feeling the bigger, the meter and the phrasing and all of that stuff. It needs to be something we feel so that we're able to execute it. This idea of meter and how poorly students actually actually do identify meter comes up in exam tests as well. So if any of you are doing exams with your students, you may be familiar with this one or it may or may not be included in your exam board. But in ours, at a certain level, I think it's grade three. Yeah, grade three, I think. Could be grade two. They start asking them what, which time signature a piece has. They give them a simple choice in the beginning. So it's just three, four, four, four or something like that. And they play it very, very clearly. But still, it's an area where some students really struggle. And so in thinking about this, this, I mean, even for several years, in thinking about this and where students were struggling with this, I started to think about how I did that test. And the way that I did that test without any teacher telling me to do it this way, it was just my little hack, I guess, was that I went into my own head and pictured which type of dance I would do with that. Now, the bit I haven't told you here, you may not know about me, is I used to do a lot of Irish dancing. And so I would just, you know, the question is three, four, 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 or six, eight often. So it was very easy for me to say, okay, which dance fits? And in my head, I would imagine myself doing a little bit of a reel or a little bit of a jig and go, which one is a better fit? Okay, it's that one. Or is it a hornpipe? Right? So that's how I figured this stuff out. Most students cannot imagine themselves Irish dancing to something, but it did get me thinking about dance and how valuable simple, simple dance would be in getting students to both identify meters as they need to for this exam test or this part of the exam and in getting them to feel it. So that's what I set out to do. And I've been thinking about this for several years and I have a few ideas around it that I want to try. But I did try one of them recently. So in September at our group workshop, I had every student learn a few very simple dance moves and practice doing them 
to some music. I use mostly Irish traditional music because it's so easy to find the correct examples and in good speeds and for dancing to and all of that stuff. But you could use your own local traditional dance music. You can use the Irish music or you can use classical music. It doesn't matter what your examples are as long as there's a clear beat to it. And we practiced doing our dance moves. We practiced it then with the music and then transitioned to having students play it and us dance. So half of the students playing some simple 3-4-4-4 pattern, depending on their level, set them up with something that made sense. And then half of the students with me dancing along to it and trying to change at the right time when they were changing. And having the musicians try to stick with, you know, actually make it clear throughout and not lose any beats. It also emphasized this need for people, for the musicians to keep going. And the point that the notes weren't important. They were playing wrong notes. It didn't matter. But if they missed a beat, we all felt it. And they got to experience that as well as the dancers, right? When we're in the dancing group, I pointed it out to them. I said, did you see what happened there? Did you feel it? I said, yeah, it's really annoying or uncomfortable or that really disrupted our flow right? And I said, well, what would have happened if they played a wrong note? Nothing. Nothing at all. I'm always trying to get this across to my students because it's, I just feel it's a point that really needs to be drilled home. So it did do that as well. But the main point of this exercise was to get students to feel the time signature that we were in, in their feet, in their bodies, so that they could understand what they were for, what the point of them even is. Right? It's not just an arbitrary rule that you now have to fit the notes into these number of beats in a bar in this, right? It's not that. It serves a purpose. And I think dancing is one of the clearest ways to get them to feel that purpose. And it doesn't just go for Irish music. It absolutely goes for the vast majority, or not the vast majority, but a huge amount of the classical music that we play, especially in the beginning intermediate levels. They're dances. That's what they were written for, right? We play minuets and jigs and waltzes all the time. But have you ever gotten your students to dance to them? So whether you're doing this at a group workshop and you plan to do it like I did, with Irish steps or simple steps side to side, or you do it in your one-on-one classes, one-on-one lessons, either way, I hope you'll try out this idea of dancing in your lessons. And it does not have to be fancy. I want to emphasize that point. Yes, I did years of Irish dancing. I'm not drawing on that for this, okay? I'm not teaching them fancy Irish dancing, step dancing. That's not what's happening. We're just stepping side to side in a pattern that makes sense. So it's a simple waltz side to side, not even moving around, okay? Just one, two, three, one, two, three. So that's right, left, right. Yeah, that pattern. Or if it's two, four, you know, you're just marching simple as that. doesn't have to be fancy or involve kickball changes or any, any nonsense. Just keep it simple and try it out. I think you'll see the difference it makes. And try it out for a piece that's new to a student as well as one that they've been playing for a while and see the transformation that it has on those pieces. Let me know how you get on with that strategy in our Facebook group or shoot me a quick email. I'll be happy to chat to you about it. And I will see you back here next week. Bye for now. If you love this idea of teaching rhythm 
through movement, then you would really like my book, Rhythm in Five, and the corresponding course. So if you're a member of Vibrant Music Teaching, you can access the course and a PDF of the book right inside the video library. Just have a look for Rhythm in Five. And if you're not a member, you can sign up, of course, at vmt.ninja. Or you can get my book by searching on Amazon or your favorite book retailer of choice for Rhythm in Five. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.